Hi, my name is Jimmy Gertz. Uh, welcome to another episode of Looking at the Movie Times, the podcast where we look at a new movie being released in theaters and place it into the times of film. And this weekend, with the release of The Girl on the Train, we're going to be looking at modern paperback adaptations. And not only The Girl on the Train comes out this week, but we also have the new Jack Reacher movie coming out and the new Dan Brown movie, Inferno, coming out this month. So it seemed like a good as much time as any to revisit them. And joining me to talk about it is Tampa Bay Times book editor Colette Bancroft. Thanks for talking to me, Colette. My pleasure. And to kind of clarify, because there's all kinds of paperbacks that are made into movies, you know, we could do a whole other episode on young adult adaptations mm -hmm. that are being made. When I talk paperbacks, and you could call these paperbacks, airport novels, beach read books, there's all kinds of terms for it. That's how they, Yeah, there, there's a certain type. It's kind of more adult books. There's tawdriness to them, but kind of in a tasteful manner when you're talking about a lot of these books. Mm -hmm. Making them into movies is nothing new. In fact, you know, two of the most beloved movies of all time, The Godfathers and Jaws, are both kind of adaptations of books that were popular, but not necessarily classics in the way that movies, the movies became when they were made into them. And you, you see this happening, you know, throughout the decades in the 90s, you know, I think it was John Grisham and Michael Crichton that kind of supplied almost half of the adult movies that were being made by Hollywood, sometimes it felt like. But I think the turnover time is even greater than usual now. For instance, a movie we're talking about, The Girl on the Train, pretty much as soon as it came out, it was already optioned into a movie by Hollywood. Before, and, as a matter of fact. And, you know, because they have a pretty huge audience of these people who read these books in multitudes and then will go out to see the movies, uh, you know, the girl on the train is already looking at a really strong opening weekend. Mm -hmm. Let me ask as somebody who comes more on the book side of it than uh, the film side of it, which is more where I lay on. How important to you is it that these movies stay cl very close to the source material? Because The Godfathers and Jaws, for instance, some pretty serious liberties were taken in changing parts of the material. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think with these books, that's less of a a concern that it might be with more kind of literary novels. A lot of these books are mm -hmm. written with movies in mind. When Dan Brown writes his books, when, uh, you know, he's, he knows they're going to be made into movies and he's thinking about them in a cinematic sense. Um, Lee Child, it took a while for Reacher to make it to the screen, but I think mm -hmm. almost from the beginning, Child saw that series as something aimed at the movies. Certainly, I think Girl on the Train, after Gone Girl, you know, mm -hmm. Girl on the Train is sort of in that same vein. Um, so I, I think that, that these authors are sort of aiming for the movies in the first place, and there's less need to alter those books because they're sort of streamlined for the movies. All of these two are books all the ones we're talking about kind of broadly fall into the category of crime fiction. They're mysteries mm -hmm. or they're thrillers or, you know, um, some of them are sort of spy novels, uh, but they all sort of fall into that crime fiction genre that that's dependent on really strong plot and really strong characters and not so much on intricate subplots or the author's voice or beautiful sentences or things like that. So they're sort of, you know, and, you know, the, the, the junction between movies and crime fiction goes back a long, long, long way. 
Right. And, and so I think, on the other hand, some books do depart in major ways. And, and I think when you mess with major plot points, as some movies mm-hmm. do, you can get into trouble. Well, and I think kind of the paradox of this situation is often definitely not a case of, you know, the better the book, the better the movie. One problem we're finding right now with something like Ian McGregor, who took, you know, uh, Philip Ross' American Pastoral, which is a hugely acclaimed book and made it into a movie, um, is getting really poor reviews right now just because so much of what's great about that book isn't necessarily translatable to cinema. Yeah. Whereas something like, you know, where something that's a little bit pulpier and not as critically acclaimed, you know, something like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo Mm -hmm. books or Gone Girl, it's easier to make that into a great film, I think, because you can, there's, you know, it's it's easy to improve on those things, I think. Right. With with a literary novel like Philip Roth's American Pastoral, that kind of book is really dependent on great writing, you know, beautiful sentences Mm -hmm. and on the author's voice. And it's very, very difficult to translate an author's voice to a movie, especially a very literary writer. You know, the, the, and many people have tried with many books and failed. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's one thing. And another thing is that literary novels like Roth's and, and many others have much more density that is, there's a lot more to them in terms of plot development, character development, um, just all sorts of layers. And that's mm-hmm. really hard to put, to make into a two hour movie, it's impossible. You, there's so much, you, anytime you make a book into a movie, a full length novel into a movie, you have to strip a lot away, you know, mm-hmm. just to fit it into that time span. And if it's a very dense, complex, layered literary work, that's that much more you have to strip away and you may lose important things. With a novel that's sort of streamlined in the first place, that has you know a strong central plot and, and is really concerned with moving that plot forward rather than developing you know, intellectual complexity, you're not, you don't have to cut away as much, and it's more likely you can translate those central traits of the book to the screen. And I, th- I think a good example of that is something like uh, the, the Bourne series, for instance. Mm-hmm. Now, those books, they might be popular in their genre, you know, uh, they're a pleasant enough read, but I don't think they're anybody's idea of a great piece of literary mm-hmm. work necessarily. But I think, you know, they were able to translate into films uh, really well, you know, and I think that the films have been able to get a certain amount of acclaim and prestige in their series that the books might not necessarily have in their own genre. And I think it's, you know, a really uh, a great, I, you know, example of how you're able to translate a director's working to kind of these, when you have a simplistic narrative like mm-hmm. that, Directors like Paul Greengrass, a director who did, you know, Born Supremacy and Born Ultimatum, is kind of able to translate his own style into mm-hmm. that simplistic narrative. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Born uh, movies are one of the better examples recently of uh, paperback movies that have been made into paperback books, that is, that have been made into movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they're a good example of that. Um, not that there there can't be some complexity, and and not every writer who writes that kind of popular bestseller 
is thinking of movies. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned that, you know, clearly Dan Brown's thinking about the movies, Lee Child's thinking about the movies. Um, I'm sure the Bourne books, you know, they're thinking about the movies as they're written. But um, you mentioned earlier The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and that's an interesting mm-hmm. example because, of course, Steve Larson, who wrote those books, died before they ever were published. Mm-hmm. He had no way of anticipating that they would become as the kind of phenomenon that they became first as books, as bestsellers. They became just enormous bestsellers. Um, but that they could be translated into movies that would be hits as well. And Larson didn't think of those books, from what we know, you know, um, from what he said to, you know, friends and wrote about the books before they were published. He didn't see them as kind of airport books, as bestsellers. He saw them as really kind of serious social criticism. He was very political all his life. He was an investigative journalist. And he saw these Mm -hmm. books as a kind of expression of his deep concern for the abuse of women and children. And I think if, if he's, you know, if he's looking down from wherever he might be looking down or up or whatever from, he's going to be astonished that these books sort of turned into the pop phenomenon that they did. And that's, they're sort of an anomaly in this, this larger um, group of movies, I think, that we're looking at. Um, but I think the reason they translated to movies so well is that he did, although he did have those layers of meaning and social concern and things that we don't usually see in pop novels, he also had, he he was also very good at constructing a propulsive plot, a plot that pulls you forward through the story. And with Lisbeth Salander, he created just this kind of incredible superhero kind of a, you know, avenging angel. Um, and that that's something the movies can really work with. Well, I think it's interesting, too, the thing that when it comes to bestsellers, you can kind of predict what will be popular, mm-hmm. but there's, there's, there's never any guarantee. You find the same thing in both film and book. You know, sometimes uh, it's something that, you know, whether it's, uh, the, you know, a sequel to a Stephen King book that seems like a sure bet or a superhero movie that seems like a sure bet. For every one of those, you have some kind of anomaly, like, you know, in the book world, something like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, where it may not necessarily seem like it's going to be a uh, success, but just somehow through word of mouth mm-hmm. or whatever it is, it finds kind of this life as right. a big success. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the thing with the girl with the dragon tattoo, obviously, I do agree that uh, Larson did seem to have some kind of it, it's in a way, it's almost a little bit like the uh, films and maybe the literature of the 70s, where there's a distrust of government played into kind of the labyrinthine conspiracy to it. But um, I don't know. Do you find it something that is more high literature, like Larson said? Do you find it more kind of a beach read or do you find it some weird thing that kind of bridges the divide between the two? I think it sort of, I think it sort of bridges a divide. It, Larson's novels are not, I wouldn't call them, certainly wouldn't call them literary novels. The, mm-hmm. the writing doesn't rise to that level of, you know, a, a literary novel. And, and he's certainly writing within a popular genre. I mean, he's, they're crime fiction. Once again, we're going back to crime fiction. Um, but it does have, it has more, well, I won't say that. Crime fiction often does have kind of social concerns built into it um, mm-hmm. about, 
race or gender or violence or you know a whole lo long list of things a lot of people who write those books you know make that part of their story i think he just did that to a greater degree for him that was a more primary concern whether it's a primary thing in the book as much as he thought it was is something different writers what what writers think they're doing and what they're actually doing are it's not always the same thing they may think mm -hmm. they're writing a certain kind of book and they may be doing something else yeah and i mean the thing with the uh story to those ones is someone like me had a little bit of a hard time getting onto the girl with the dragon tattoo franchise because like i said i think um, maybe it was just the movies more so than the novels. Uh, there is, as I said earlier, kind of a tasteful tawdriness to it. It's on one hand, you know, it's pretty much kind of a rape revenge, uh, you know, pot boiler. But it's also a rape revenge pot boiler that, you know, your mother or your grandmother might be reading at the same time. And uh, that, that can be kind of an awkward fit. <laughs> but at the same time, I think there is... Uh, some social relevance to what uh, Larson was going for, uh, both in terms of the conspiracy and uh, looking at the treatment of gender. It's almost kind of like horror movies where you look at horror movies and sometimes they can be an allegory for, you know, being anti-Vietnam in the 70s. There's all kinds of things that these kind of seemingly disposable genre mm -hmm. entries can be. Mm -hmm. And let me ask as somebody who is maybe more familiar with the books than I am, do you have any opinion when it comes to the uh, Swedish films versus the, so far, the one American version we've gotten by David Fincher? I've only seen the first Swedish one and the, and the American one. I think they both did good jobs with the book, mm -hmm. with translating the book. Um, I may have liked the Swedish one a little more, um, just because I thought the, the, the woman who played Lisbeth in that one was a little more the way I saw the character. But I think both of them were successful. And I don't think, I don't think what Fincher did was dramatically different from mm -hmm. this, you know, he actually didn't like come up, invent an entirely new version. You know, that version and the Swedish version don't diverge a whole lot. So um, I, I enjoyed both of them and I thought both of them were pretty good translations of the books. And I think one of the things that's interesting with the director of the American one, David Fincher, mm -hmm. you know, who's a guy who's one of the most acclaimed and renowned directors working in kind of a Hollywood mainstream setting, at least. Mm -hmm. If you look at a lot of the movies he's made, the source material is not necessarily always the most prestigious mm -hmm. background. Some of it is uh, the social network, for instance, you know, you have it based on a book done by Aaron Sorkin, that's obviously very high profile. Or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, that's based on F. Scott Fitzgerald mm -hmm. and written by the guy who did Forrest Gump. I mean, you can't get much more kind of generically prestige than that. Mm -hmm. But if you look at a lot of his other films, you know, Seven is kind of, it would seem like a hoary idea on the surface. You know, what if a serial killer is killing people based on sins? Mm -hmm. Fight Club is based on a Chuck Pelianuk book. Um, I don't know how you feel about him. I'm not a very big fan of his work at all, though I, I like the movie Fight Club quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I like a lot of his books, but um, right. I'm more and, of a fan than you are. But Yeah, yeah probably. Um, and I mean, Zodiac, you know, which is, I think, an amazingly written film, is based basically just on a guy who was kind of writing his own theory on the Zodiac mm -hmm. killer, which isn't like the most high-minded thing. And I think if you look at what David Fincher has been doing lately, a lot of it has been kind of these paperback pot boilers that we've been talking about 
Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl, I think mm-hmm. both very much fit into that category. But I think, A, there is a little bit more substance to these particular ones than maybe there are other entries in that genre. Mm-hmm. And I think that David Fincher brings a lot of craft to it that kind of helps elevate the material, not to mention, you know, the great casts and great crew right. that are behind these movies. Yeah. You know, Gone... Sorry, go, no, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, the material, you know... The material, the, uh, if it, you base a movie on a book, a great book does not guarantee a great movie, and a mediocre book doesn't guarantee a mediocre one. I mean, a, someone like Fincher, as you say, can take a book that's, you know, that that's got some some good material in it and elevate it because you know because he's a good director and works with you know good writers and actor you know outstanding actors and so you know you can take a you know to to jump to another example dan brown's books are i have not reviewed those books well they sell bazillions of copies but as a as a reader and as a book critic i find them so frustrating because the writing the quality of the writing is not high yeah. <laughs> but Brown can put together a story, and he's also very good at putting together a travelogue. Um, I, I always talk about Dan, Dan, Dan Brown's books as, you know, the greatest way to write off your research, you know, to spend like a year <laughs> in Florence and write it off as work. You know, fantastic. Right. I wish I'd figured that out. Um, to me, the movies made of Brown's books are more fun than the books themselves, because when I'm reading the books, I'm constantly thinking, oh, good Lord, you know, really? And when I watch the movies, I get swept up in them. And, you well, know, I think it's Tom Hanks and, and Ron Howard is a, knows how to direct that kind of movie. And, you know, it's taking this material that as a reader, I find less than entertaining, but making it into a movie that I do find entertaining. Well, I think another good example of that is um, just recently the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, mm-hmm. movie. Not not a great movie by any means. Probably not even a uh, not even a good movie, I would say. But uh, I think it did elevate. I mean, the pretty terrible source material um, just by the fact that you had somebody like, uh, you know, when you have an actor like Dakota Johnson, who's a you know pretty talented actor, that helps elevate the pretty terribly written character and prose mm-hmm. of the novel. Yeah, I'll take so, your word for it. I was so I was so dismayed by the prose of the novel that, <laughs> that I couldn't bring myself to go to the movie. Although it would almost be impossible for the movie to be worse than the book. So, right. So I think in in some cases, if you're working with kind of bad but popular material, mm-hmm. it it almost gives good directors at least uh, kind of a good easel to work yeah. with because. Yeah, you can kind of impart your own uh, stamp onto the material. I think there's less concern with I have to be respectful of the author if if the author is not that great. You know, if you're making a movie out of a out of James Joyce, you know, you can't which no one has ever been able to do except I can think of one example and it's a short story. But Mm -hmm. that's The Dead, which was directed by John Huston, who is probably the best director ever at translating literary novels or literary short stories into really good movies. You know, he, he could do it. Not very many uh, other people have been very good at it, but, um, 
But if you are working with an author like that, like I, I feel bad for whoever is going to make a movie or a, a miniseries from Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, which was a huge bestseller and which many, mm -hmm. many people have read. And it's it's sort of, it was a very popular novel, but it's also a literary novel. And Tartt is a, a writer with a very distinctive style and voice. And whoever makes that into a movie will have two really difficult tasks. For one thing, whittling an almost 800 page book down into a manageable, you know, thing to film. But also, right. you know, that person can't just say, you know, well, the prose in this book's, you know, who cares? I'm telling this story because the prose in that book does matter. And it sort of adds a layer of difficulty, I think, to, to the director's task and the screenwriter's task. Yeah, so it is tough. And I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl are certainly better than uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and the damn brown books when we're talking about it. But he, he was able to, I think, stay true to the source while still being uh, making uh, pretty good movies. And Gone Girl is an interesting case for me because it's not entirely different from what we're talking about in terms of uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Girl on the Train, where it's kind of like sleazy, but tastefully sleazy. Mm -hmm. But um, I like Gone Girl quite a bit more than uh, either Girl on the Train or Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies. Mm -hmm. And I think what it may be is that I don't think anyone would consider uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo a feel-good movie. In fact, <laughs> I think it was... <laughs> if someone thinks that we need, they need to, you know, see somebody. <laughs> but, in fact, I think it was sold as, like, the feel-bad right. movie of the Christmas season when it came out. But it is maybe a little bit more conventional and there's a little bit in the series, a little bit of a happy ending. Yeah. I think part of why Gone Girl works so well is that it, you know, I think David Fincher is one of cinema's currently best, like our greatest misanthropes mm -hmm. and Gone Girl just commits itself so wholly to a really cynical, really misanthropic point mm -hmm. of view. Yeah. 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 And, and that's what, uh, something I was talking, that's sort of what I was talking about when I was talking about changing endings. Because there are other examples of these books where the the novel itself was was dark and ended darkly, did not end happily. And um, you know, I I think when they make movies of those kinds of books, often they focus group them, and people don't like those dark endings. And so I always like it when the movie commits and is you know there rather than pretty it up, rather than you know make a happy ending where they're real. It's not really earned. You know, um, mm. I'd rather I'd, I'd rather see the dark ending too, if that's where the where the story should be going. Mm -hmm. And and what did you think of the movie overall, uh, Gone Girl? I haven't seen Gone Girl. Oh, you have not. Okay. I'm behind on this. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's another example of maybe, although maybe not, because Gillian was brought back to uh, adapt her novel, and I think she did a really good job. Um, but it's another example of where I think just the sheer craft of it really helps elevate the movie. Mm -hmm. You have Rosamund Pike doing a great job. You have Ben Affleck playing kind of this perfect smarmy guy. Mm -hmm. And, you, you, you know, you have uh, David Fincher again, who has just such great craft for kind of that sort of filmmaker. Um, maybe that's, and like I said, it's, a, I think it's a lot darker and violent and misanthropic, which is part of why maybe it works for me where some of these other movies haven't. Um, you mentioned the uh, Dan Brown adaptations of the movies. I'll have to take your word. I never read any of the books, so I'll have to take your word that they uh, <laughs> exceed the books. Um, part of it that's a little bit tough for me is just, you know, these are movies that are 
fairly safe PG-13 movie, so there is some fun in seeing kind of Tom Hanks uh, run around in locations, mm-hmm. but they're, they're, they're fairly kind of, you know, safe conventional movies in some ways, and uh, whatever you want to say about Gone Girl, it's, uh, that's not how I would describe that movie at yeah. all. And I think the fact that, it, that there was that commitment to the dark ending does have to do with the fact that, that Gillian Flynn wrote the screenplay. That, that it was, you know, that she was committed to that ending in the book and committed to that ending in the movie as well. And sometimes that does have an influence. It's not really that kind of a book or movie, but um, another exam, recent example of, of that is Emma Donahue's Room, which mm-hmm. came out last year as a film and a couple of years before that as a book. And, and that's a very dark story. Um, but Donahue wrote the screenplay herself. And, and mm-hmm. the, the resulting movie is very true, you know, to the book. Um, a lot of authors don't want to write their own screenplays or don't know <laughs> how. And, you know, but when they do, it's often a kind of interesting result. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that brings us to the new movie we're going to discuss now, which is The Girl on the Train, um, which in many ways is kind of a similar uh, story to Gone Girl, especially in the book. You know, part of it is that you're kind of dealing with an unreliable narrator and, you know, multiple angles. Mm-hmm. And in the main character in uh, The Girl on the Train is an alcoholic who's prone to blackouts, which, I mean, like I said, this is kind of a very conventional thriller, but I think it does add a little bit of unconventionality to it because you have a logical explanation of kind of being out of the loop when you have a main character who is unreliable just because they literally can't remember right. he doesn't uh, even know what's herself. Going. yeah what she's done yeah right so it's kind of what we're talking about when it you run into trouble with adapting something that's more into prose into a movie even though you know uh girl on the train is hardly uh philip roth uh when it terms to quality of it right. but it's just how do you translate that to film uh the idea of kind of an unreliable narrator and unfortunately, I think this movie has a harder time of making that leap than than other ones have in the past. And in part because the director of this movie, Tate Taylor, um, who had previously done The Help, is not exactly David Fincher mm-hmm. when it comes to no. <laughs> being a renowned craftsman. Right. I, um, and I think also the, the unreliable narrator, as you say, is a kind of, you know, really basic device, especially in crime fiction, but in all kinds of, of, of fiction. And it's, it's a device, it's a, a, a method that I think is much easier to pull off successfully in a book. Because if you're mm-hmm. reading a book and you have an unreliable narrator, that person really is your only source of information. You know, because mm-hmm. all you have is what's on the page. And, and so it's easier to sort of lead a reader down the wrong path in a book. In a movie... Mm-hmm. It, where the reader even just visually has other sources of information and in the reactions of other people and uh, other actors and things like that it's i think it's much more difficult to successfully snow the reader you know fool the reader into that false narrative and especially multiple false narratives than it is in a book so and much harder to pull off and i'm not sure you know whether this movie does that um yeah and i I don't think it does in part because it is a is a very tricky kind of balancing act and 
I just don't think there's enough uh, necessarily craft in the direction yeah. to really. I mean, it can certainly be done. Um, Usual Suspects is that the name of that movie? Yeah, uh, it yeah. is a great example, you know, of of it being done successfully. But but it's much harder to do on screen, I think, than it is on the page. Mm-hmm. And what I was saying before about uh, kind of tasteful tawdriness being a staple of these kind of books, you you really get the sense of that in Girl on the Train. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something like Gone Girl, for instance, um, you know, is very, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of violence, there's like a Sweeney Todd-esque, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spray of blood at one point in that movie. Whereas The Girl on the Train, you know, it almost feels kind of like an R-rated uh, Lifetime movie or something mm-hmm. like that. I haven't read the book, so I can't say if that's true to the book or not. But, you know, there's very mild violence. Right. You know, there's a lot of sex and nudity, but it's always, like, vaguely obscured. I, I feel like if you're going to make a, a movie or a book that is tawdry and sleazy and deals in exploitation, you either you kind of have to fully commit to it. Um, when you make one that's sleazy, but sleazy in a way you can still discuss it at like <laughs> your, your, your local book club. Mm-hmm. Often it doesn't, it doesn't really work in my opinion. Yeah. You're, you're better just trying to make that high minded movie. So I think that's a problem this movie runs into. I do want to credit uh, Emily Blunt, who I think does an excellent job as the main character. Yeah, she's always good. Yeah. I think with, the, yeah. I think with the, the kind of the sex and violence thing that you're talking about, that's actually more difficult for movie makers because they have to they have to temper it enough to get that all important R rating, um, and a, a, a novelist doesn't. They can put in just as much blood and sex as they want, and you know books don't come with little X stamps on the cover or R or PG thirteen. <laughs> so you know it's more in the writer's control. A movie maker has you know considerations other than just you know, here's what I want to put in my movie. It's if I don't get the R rating, this movie will not make any money. <laughs> right. And I mean, a perfect example of that is the 50 shades of gray mm-hmm. movie. If you were, if you were to translate that faithfully oh, yeah. from the text, not, not that you should, but if you were, you know, mm-hmm. it'd probably be a, an easy NC 17. Um, you know, speaking, speaking of, they, they probably need a nude rating for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, kind of the literary seg part of it, for, I know that uh, the author Brett Easton Ellis for a long time was lobbying hard to make the adaptation of Fifty Shades of Grey mm-hmm. with the uh, director Gus Van Sant, which mm-hmm. I think would have been a very potentially fascinating movie. But um, yeah, I'm, I am that... guessing that movie would be would be really interesting and would be virtually nothing like the book. Well, and also would be virtually and good... uh, unable. <laughs> Sorry, go and ahead. That would be a good thing, I think. I'm, yeah, I would not only would see it... Gus Van Sant's version of it. <laughs> Well, not only would it be uh, virtually, unre- I, I think it would be virtually unreleasable because yeah, I don't true. think it would have, yeah, they wouldn't have gone, I, the movie essentially just becomes kind of a, a soft core movie, yeah. uh, which, you know, obviously isn't what the book is going for, mm-hmm. why the book appealed so much to people. But going back to The Girl on the Train, I mean, there's there's a lot of talent involved with this movie, um, maybe not the director necessarily, but, you know, Emily mm-hmm. Blunt's great. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Ferguson, who plays one of the main characters, is, is great. I, it just doesn't work because it's almost kind of a throwback. You know, we were talking about the 90s and Michael Crichton and all of them earlier. It's almost a throwback to those uh, respectable trash movies of the 90s, mm-hmm. like The Hand, The Rocks, The Cradle, Single White Female. Mm-hmm. 
those kind of movies, which, you know, are fine enough, but I, I don't think you would ever consider them great or good movies. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think this movie uh, necessarily clears that hurdle either. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so before we go, I'm, I'm kind of interested, uh, as somebody who has to read these books a lot more than mm-hmm. I do, um, what, what do you think are maybe some of the next ones we might see on screen or do you think that we should see on screen mm-hmm. in terms of kind of these paperback airport novels? Mm-hmm. Well, you'll definitely see The Next Day in Brown. It's coming out yeah. next fall. Um, it's called Origin, and I'm sure that they're already working on the script. Uh, no question about that. Um, I, I, think, I, I think authors who have been successful with these kinds of books... Um, you will see, you know, if they're Gillian Flynn, whatever Gillian Flynn writes next will be made into a movie after Gone Girl, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a new one. Boy, um, I tend I tend to read more literary novels for review, and I'm trying to think of a, a kind of pop novel that I reviewed recently that I'm likely to see on the screen. Boy, I'm hard put because I can't, think of a new one. There are lots of, mm-hmm. of kind of established series. Um, but a new one, they're hard to predict. Gone Girl was hard to predict because Flynn had written three or four novels before that. And mm-hmm. none of them, they did respectably, but um, none of them took off the way that Gone Girl did first as a book and then became movies. Actually, one, and you know, she's such a 10,000 pound gorilla already that it, we almost don't need any more from her. But um, J.K. Rowling's crime series, uh-huh. the Robert Galbraith novels about a character called Cormoran Strike. Um, they're mm-hmm. set in London and uh, she's written three of them. And I've just been listening to the audio version of the most recent one. And they're perfect for movies. You know, I, I'm kind of shocked that they haven't been made into movies yet. Um, Mm -hmm. they're totally unlike any of the Harry Potter stuff. They're really good kind of hard boiled chasing down a serial killer, you know, and the most recent one starts off with Cormoran strike, getting a package in the mail at his office and it has a severed leg in it. You know, they're, Right. They're that kind of book. And, and I'm listening to the audio version and, you know, it's the kind of book that you can see the movie while you're reading it or listening to it. And she's not new, of course. She's already, like I said, the 10,000 pound gorilla of books made into movies. But these these would be great, you know, kind of, if there's airport books, airport movies. So I, I'm guessing we'll see those soon enough. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me, Colette. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. I had a good time.